The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. The news alerts it red. We got it right. We got the spill right. We don't know what we're doing with Halliburton. We don't know what's going to happen. God, you're a pussy. You know, I'm just... And it's not like you said the sorority girl is responsible for setting the hemisphere on fire. And give the internet an hour. That's exactly what it'll say we said. I'm too old to be governed by fear of dumb people. I'm not. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 15th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Fear of the internet and of public opinion seems to be at the heart of a startling call for a police state by Canada's state-financed media in an alarming open letter to Canada's Prime Minister, which concerns an issue I think should be on everyone's front burner, especially given all of the efforts currently underway to establish censorship and thought control across the globe. Yes, the Queen is dead, and the controversies surrounding the British monarchy and royal family are just beginning to get started. But for today, I've reserved any comments I may have regarding the monarchy for the last part of our show. Ironically, what concerned me most this past week was the biggest story that wasn't, as I will explain right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. So, after Joe Biden's monumentally disastrous September 1st speech, which was featured on last week's show entitled Projection, Joe Biden's Democratic Appeal, I eagerly awaited to see what the state-dependent media would have to say about it and how they would spin it, especially given that the speech was an unprecedented assault on American values and on the country itself. But to make a long story short, After going through every page of my print editions of the London Free Press and National Post Daily Papers, from that day to the present, I have yet to see even a single mention of Biden's speech. Like it never happened. And as I pondered the immensity of such a failure of the Fourth Estate to inform its public on a matter of such monumental significance, and as I was looking for evidence of any coverage regarding Biden's speech, There was one item that accidentally caught my attention, and it was an open letter to the Prime Minister of Canada that was not featured as a news or commentary article, but printed like, you know, an official notice. And its content was certainly worthy of being both a news item and a commentary. What made the open letter particularly disturbing was not only who sponsored it, the fake news media themselves, but definitely what it said. It read exactly like a continuation of Joe Biden's dystopian speech, including all of the projection. But more than that, I couldn't help but notice the dystopian nature of everything I was seeing in those newspapers. 
You know, I just sat back and took a look at them. The pages surrounding the official notice of that open letter, for example, were filled by a single advertiser. Help stop climate change with this carbon-sucking machine, reads the headline on a one-and-a-half full-page ad on pages four and five. Apparently, it is possible to stop climate change by changing the credit card you use. Did you have any idea about that? And some of the headlines as I perused, just over one or two or three days' papers, you know. Trump's search inventory reveals new details, included 43 folders marked classified. Of course, we've dealt with that ad infinitum here. Officials exchange blame on nuke plant. Russia denies firing missiles toward facility. As job vacancies reach record highs, experts urge more support for newcomers. Expect COVID vaccine clinic parking woes as Western Fair returns. No harm in gender lesson, tribunal. Parents upset by fluidity discussion in grade one class. Stabbing suspect had long history of violence. Smith releases plan for Alberta sovereignty. Parents urged to keep kids up to date on all vaccines. Mask up for others. Ontario needs a strategy to manage long COVID, science advisors say. Minister O'Kay's moves to speed addition of foreign nurses. Western pushes back student-staff COVID booster deadline. Is frosh an offensive term? Officials think so. Freeland pressed on NATO rumors. Doesn't deny she'll make a run for its top job. EU proposes price cap on Russian gas. Putin warns he'll cut off supplies if cap imposed. Canada told to quit playing with Russia, Ukraine Congress. City trans activist KO's web foe. More women in this council race. Police urge caution with first day of school posts. Incoming students praise Western safety measures. You know, those safety measures that have been protested against and making news around the world. Tackle confusion over vaccines before it's too late. Bill 7 won't solve hospital bed shortages. It's wrong to blame elderly for problems in health care. And on and on and on. Suffice it to say that the newspapers and corporate broadcast media are still living in January 2020, seemingly oblivious to the events in which they are immersed. And they're oblivious to what's happening to the people that their blindness and outright deceptions are directly affecting. But on Biden's dystopian speech, their silence is deafening, whereas their open letter to the Prime Minister of Canada was deafeningly threatening when it comes to freedom of speech itself and to the very foundations of Canada as a free society. And here's David Menzies of Rebel News on September 9th to introduce us to what the fake news media is asking of the government. That was one humdinger of an open letter that was published the other day by members of the media party. It's a joint letter, actually, signed by 48, count them, 48 media organizations and associations. It was sent to the prime minister, cabinet ministers, and other political leaders. And the letter, quote, demands action on the growing harassment and abuse of journalists in Canada, end quote. Oh my, it would seem that the media watchdogs, who now exist as lapdogs, are in a most disagreeable mood, despite being very well taken care of by their kennel master, Justin Trudeau. 
Then again, I suppose even the tiniest and most domesticated chihuahua might yelp out a bark or two if it's pissed off, right? So how about we dissect this missive, shall we? It begins, quote, dear Prime Minister Trudeau, end quote. Well, of course Justin is dear. He's the media party's sugar daddy. More than a billion annually for the vastly unwatched CBC, more than 600 million annually to the rest of the mainstream media because these outlets can't seem to sell subscriptions and advertising in sufficient volume to stay afloat. And gee, I wonder why that would be. Needless to say, sucking from the government teat is immoral and unethical. Simply put, how can you objectively cover the latest scandals erupting in this liberal government when you are also receiving payola from Prime Minister Blackface himself? But I digress because the media mutts are barking mad. Apparently, the practice of journalism these days is getting increasingly dangerous. Oh, oh you don't say. And apparently, Master Trudeau is not protecting his minions as he should be in these uber-violent times. Yes, first they want bucks, now they want bodyguards and even a dash of Big Brother to, you know, monitor things. You see, not a week goes by in Canada in which a journalist isn't slaughtered in the course of duty. Okay, not slaughtered, uh, would you believe, beaten to a pulp? Um, how about slapped on the wrist? Um, harsh language, anyone? Yes, it's F-bombs and mean tweets that the sluggos and the MSM are enduring. And this will not be tolerated. These are special people, after all, folks. Anyway, the letter goes on to state, quote, We are writing in relation to the increasing and alarming online hate and harassment targeting journalists and journalism as a profession. This is a global problem which threatens not only the safety and well-being of journalists, but the proper functioning of democracy itself. Many countries are now working on plans to fight back. We are calling on Canadian police and policymakers to do the same. For the most part, these attacks are aimed at racialized and female journalists who are experiencing an increasing number of targeted vile threats of violence, end quote. Is that true, by the way? Racialized and female journalists are receiving the brunt of this harassment? Or is this yet more critical race theory being jammed down our throats? The letter goes on, quote, we are asking police forces to take several immediate steps to address the current incidents and to work with our organizations to combat abuse of journalists and all victims of online hate and harassment, end quote. So if you read between the lines here, folks, these journalists and journalism organizations are calling for censorship. They are calling for a further enhancement of what is already a society resembling a police state. That's an odd thing for those in the press to clamor for, wouldn't you say? Oh, and be careful what you wish for, guys. The Trudeau liberals are already hell-bent on censoring the internet as is. Methinks some of the signatories to this letter might not like the final result.
the open letter drones on, quote, First, many of the threatening emails use similar language, the language commonly used by domestic extremist groups, end quote. Whoa, 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 stop the clock. Who are these so-called domestic extremist groups? They are not identified in the open letter. What a reckless use of language by these scribes. You see, the way journalism works is that you make a statement and then you back it up with a fact or an example. So again, who are these domestic terrorist groups? I think they are referring to the freedom convoys of the last several months. Yeah, that was one hell of a terrorist group on Wellington Street in Ottawa, wasn't it? Especially if one believes bouncy castles and hot tubs are weapons of mass destruction. Oh, by the way, isn't it interesting how the media loathes phantom domestic extremist groups, but they really kind of dig international terrorist groups. Case in point, our homegrown al-Qaeda terrorist, Omar Khadr, he killed an American ally and partially blinded another. So we locked them up for life, of course. Oh, no, we didn't do that. Justin Trudeau, who never met a jihadi he didn't adore, cut little Omar a check for $10.5 because this murderer had his feelings hurt? Please find me the doofus who coined the phrase, crime does not pay. The online letter at points gets comical, folks. Check out this line, quote, On several occasions, journalists from our organizations have experienced difficulty reporting incidents of harassment to police waiting hours on the phone, and in some cases being treated insensitively or dismissively by officers, end quote. Oh my God in heaven, these reporters were put on hold and they were treated in an insensitive fashion? Gee, it really is a war zone out there for these scribes, I'll tell you. Then come the demands, which can be summed up as follows. They essentially want a thought police force one that will take action on, quote, journalists who have become targets of hate and harassment, end quote. And this will, quote, protect journalists and thus democracy, <laughs> end quote. Oh, please, guys, get over yourselves. Taxpayer-funded journalists receiving nasty tweets is a akin to an attack on democracy? Surely an insurrection. And besides, have these sluggos ever heard the rhyme that begins with sticks and stones may break my bones? Aside from the usual suspects, such as the CBC and Torstar, the latter being more concerned with running its online casino other than publishing newspapers these days, well, there are notable signatories to this open letter. For example, there's Canada Land, which, despite its moniker, is not a theme park, although it can resemble a house of horrors at times, and the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. Now, I didn't even know this organization existed, and I wonder what their position is on their benefactor's habit of, you know, donning blackface. And, of course, there's the media party's very own beloved union, Unifor, a.k.a. The Resistance. Say, guys, how's... Unifor's former president, Jerry Diaz, doing. You remember Jerry, don't you, folks? He allegedly accepted $50,000 from a supplier of COVID-19 rapid test kits. 
And then he promptly put himself into a mental hospital because he's not a fraudster, you see. He's sick or the devil made him do it or, or something like that. And that was just the tip of the iceberg of fascism that constituted the essence of the September 1st open letter to Trudeau. And it was published in the National Post on September 3rd. Now, here's a chilling part of that open letter that David Menzies did not mention in his report, and I quote, In particular, we ask that a process be established whereby media organizations can provide police with summaries of multiple incidents and patterns of abuse that might not be apparent when police rely solely on the reports of individual complainants that police provide regular updates to complainants on the progress of investigations and actions taken, and to both help police and reduce the burden on complainants, media organizations be given a formal role in filling complaints on behalf of or with journalists who have become targets of hate and harassment. Beyond law enforcement, social media platforms, which are a major channel for the dissemination of hate and harassment, bear a significant responsibility for fighting this scourge. There's much room for improvement in terms of both urgency and effectiveness in how these companies respond to complaints of abuse on their platforms. On this and other issues, policymakers too have a part to play. Hate and threats hurled at journalists have a chilling effect that is bad for democracy. That is among the reasons cited in a recent position paper prepared for the Council of Europe that calls on all member nations to pull together relevant government ministries, law enforcement agencies, social media companies, and civil society, including journalists, to develop national plans to protect journalists and thus democracy. Several countries are well advanced in this effort. We call on the federal government to do the same in Canada. I I just can't believe what I'm reading here, folks. Remember that what the media is regarding as hate and threats is really disagreement and evidence that demonstrates they are lying. And you know, to them, that is a threat, and you have to understand that's real to them. But they continue. It is increasingly evident that online abuse is a growing problem for people in our industry and beyond. We have seen up close the terrible toll that such threats and hate can take. This is a profound and spreading social harm that we cannot afford to ignore and that we must find ways to counter. We all have a stake in this fight, end quote. And among the signatories to this Hitlerian fascist agenda are the National Post, the Globe and Mail, Canadian Association of Broadcasters, the Canadian Association of Journalists, the Winnipeg Free Press, Toronto Star, TV Ontario, Quebec Corps, Post Media, Omni News, La Presse, City News, and many, many others. And boy, do they ever have a quote-unquote stake in this fight. It's a fight that they started because of the stake they have in it. The people who promote and write and lobby for such evil ideas have earned any hatred and contempt that they're complaining about. Do you really think that you're going to earn the love and respect of people to whom you've been lying for years? And the term social harm is meaningless. What social harm? What does that mean? Like the term social justice, which dispenses with individual justice, the only kind that exists, so too social harm dispenses with any recognition of individual harm, which is explicitly what the open letter advocates. Think about it. Quote, 
Because forces require an individual complaint for each incident, and because each incident appears to be treated discreetly, we are concerned that the connections among cases and the connections of extremist groups will be missed, and that therefore this approach could fail to meet the threat." End quote. So they're not even talking about any specific incidents. They want to create an imaginary web of conspiracy, tying extremists, quote-unquote, groups to their non-existent threat. And remember, extremist is a meaningless propagandist term that we took apart in relationship to Joe Biden's constant use of that term last week. They're all running scared because they're all a bunch of liars and cheats and they know that they're being found out. So, you know, when persuasion fails, just use force. Establish a police state. The real irony and hypocrisy here, of course, is that a lot of folks, just like me, consider themselves to be journalists on some level or another, and no one is offering to protect us from the hatred of Trudeau or the mainstream media. Like Joe Biden, they are projecting their own evils and fears onto those on the right. Coming up next, once again, a couple of new voices, both to me and to our show. From the September 5th Post on Bright Light News, Glenn Young interviews Canadian journalist Rodney Palmer, whose credentials will astound you, about his experience in Ottawa during the Freedom Convoy, as contrasted to what was being reported in the mainstream media, of which he was part. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're so honored to have here today Rodney Palmer. He is a longtime Canadian journalist, and first, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and then I want to ask you to introduce yourself because you have a, an incredible mainstream media credential list. Uh. I worked for about 20 years as a journalist in Canada. I worked for uh, uh, newspapers for the Globe and Mail, the Vancouver Sun. I wrote for the Toronto Star and the Montreal Gazette. Uh, primarily, I worked at CBC Radio and Television for about eight years, and I was an investigative reporter and radio producer. And I worked uh, for CTV News as a foreign correspondent. So I ran their, um, their Middle East Bureau in Jerusalem. I opened the India Bureau and ran it for three and a half years. And I worked uh, as the Asia Bureau Chief in Beijing for a couple of years. Fantastic. Now, what's happened to the media? I mean, we've got to just come straight out with it. It's supposed to be the government watchdog. It's turned into the new lapdog for the government. What in your mind is going on here? I first started wondering if all the smart people retired or went and tried to earn better money. Um, and then I started to realize that they can't all be that dumb as to be missing and misreporting the COVID story. In particular, the numbers. There was, there was very specific language. And when you work in, in media long enough, you know that there's an editing process and every word matters. And so when I started hearing that the shakeup between deaths from COVID and COVID-related deaths, I thought that's a very specific change and it means something. And why aren't they telling us what it means? COVID-related could mean a symptom that's similar to COVID, but actually has no relation. It's ambiguous. And ambiguity is not what they strive for. So it had to be a top-down directive somewhere along the line for them to so consistently be misreporting this story. Uh, and there were many examples of that. Um, the biggest one for me was the trucker's convoy. I was in Ottawa by coincidence, visiting friends. And I, my initial reaction was, 
to get the heck out of there before I couldn't drive out of town because I didn't know what that you know what eighty thousand transport trucks looked like on the road, but I knew it wasn't going to be easy for traffic. And I was asked by somebody related to this cause who had a documentary crew following the truckers if I would get a camera and wait for them to arrive. So I would be the second camera as they arrived. So I agreed to do this. And what I saw down there was extraordinary. I, when I was in my 20s, I used to go to Ottawa for the Canada Day party, which is amazing. And it is just so much fun and happiness and jubilance. And I texted my friend who I was visiting and I said, wow, this is just like when we used to go to Canada Day, except it's 40 below, you know, joking. And she said, well, that's not what I'm seeing on television. And so I went and looked at the television and there was the American network saying a couple of dozen truckers are outside of Canadian Parliament blocking traffic. Well, I could see and count at least a thousand on Wellington Street. And I was told that there was as many as 80,000 all over the place. And so why, why is it a couple of dozen? You know, why, did they, why are they telling that incorrectly? And then the prime minister from his hiding place, wherever that was, said, uh, we won't be, uh, we're not afraid of right-wing extremists. And I thought, wow, there's no sign that this is right-wing extremists. I'm seeing families, I'm seeing kids in strollers. Um, there was a group of African-American evangelists, evangelists uh, opportunistically handing out Bibles to the group. It felt like the Sunday fair at any small town, except there was a tens of thousands of people there. And the mood was consistently jubilant. So where did they get this? And then uh, on the CBC and the CTV, they were reporting about uh, this right-wing narrative. Um, the CBC reporter was out there saying, oh, there's some, there's some protesters, they're clearly very angry. And I thought, well, I'm not seeing that. I'm down here. I worked for almost a decade as a foreign correspondent, and so I reported on war in the Middle East, plane crashes, earthquakes. I went to scenes and observed them and reported about what the people were saying. It's not that hard of a job, right? You know, intellectually, you're only producing 90 seconds worth of work at the end of the day. So I was doing the same thing there. I was seeing it, and but somehow these reporters were not reporting what I was seeing. So I knew that there was a, something was wrong here. CTV the next morning had on a, a, a guy who represented some organization who had an opinion about two of the leaders of the truckers movement. I thought, well, why do they have that guy on there when their CTV offices are in the market? They're 100 meters from Wellington Street where this is actually occurring. Why aren't they out there doing a live shot, which would have been their job, um, saying, here we are. Why aren't they broadcasting from the front seat of a truck, which technologically is dead easy? I mean, I used to do this stuff in the 90s and we could handle it then. It was, the gear was bigger, but you could do it. So why weren't they going outside, looking and seeing with their own eyes, which is reporters, what they're supposed to do, which their assignment is. Instead, they were staying inside, almost as if they were looking up on Google what was happening out their window, <laughs> instead of looking. So why isn't that? I, I still don't really know why, but I know that it's true. I know that what I saw 
and I know that uh, I'm a professional at observing, and, but you don't have to be a professional to look and see. So you didn't see any homeless people being robbed of their food? Uh, I'll tell you, I, I, I spent a lot of time going back and forth to the, to the trucker's convoy um, center, and I had to pass a homeless shelter every time I walked by there, and I didn't see any of that. Um, it may have occurred when I wasn't there, but it certainly wasn't the main story that these tiny little incidents, if they were real, became the only story as opposed to a minor incidental sidebar was fairly extraordinary. That, so what they were doing, they had a predetermined approach to the story and they were going for that predetermined approach Reality be damned, we're going to tell this story. And the notion of, I saw the Terry Fox statue with a Canadian flag draped on his shoulders. And he's, the, the, the bronze statue, he's kind of running. His hands are like this. And someone had put a sign on it that said, end of mandates or something like freedom, you know, some, you know, uh, on message saying, and I thought, wow, they've turned, Harry, they've turned Terry Fox into a hero. They put a Canadian flag cape on him. The language was desecration of the Terry Fox monument. I think that as a journalist, desecration, to be accurate with the word, requires them breaking it somehow, throwing paint on it, perhaps, knocking it on its side. This would be desecration. What they did was hang a, fla a flag on his shoulders that came off... There was no desecration. There was no permanent damage to that. And it was no, there was nothing derogatory about what they did to Terry's statue at all. And then they talked about somebody, there was something with the war memorial. I believe it was urination. And I thought, wow, they should come on Canada Day when people are vomiting here, you know, from alcoholism, right? Um, how is it that this becomes the story, the message, when... Outside, there's so much going on. There was so much partying going on. By 10 o'clock at night, when it's pitch black and it's gone from negative 30 to negative 40, there was so many Quebecois people there. Because at the time, you'll remember, they were locked down worse than anybody else. They couldn't go to a Costco. They couldn't go to a Home Depot. It was way different than the rest of Canada. It was much, much more severe. And so, and plus, they're right there over the, over the river. So they were well represented there. And they're standing on top of transport trucks with their shirts off, like if they're at an NFL football game with their bodies painted up. <laughs> yes. And I'm thinking, there must be alcohol involved here because those guys should be freezing to death by now. And they were singing at the top of their lungs and they were smiling. And it felt like a celebration. It didn't feel like a Nazi rally. Now, I've never been to a Nazi rally, but I got a pretty good idea that it doesn't look like this. Um, so... How is it they, they reported what they reported? Because it wasn't what we saw. Right, so what do you think goes through the mindset of these journalists that were there doing the reporting while seeing something else? We know the Ottawa police I were red pills. I have no idea what they're thinking. Yeah. What the hell are they thinking? Like, they're not doing their job. I don't know what's going through their heads. I don't know what's going through their heads today in uh, you know, late June of 2022 when they're announcing on the CBC radio how many people died of COVID. Do you really think it, anyone's dying of COVID? My 90-year-old father on a catheter 
can't lift himself out of a wheelchair, got COVID and shook it off, right? It's not that deadly. We are not, and we never were, walking over bodies on the street. Pretty soon, you started scratching your head. Like, if you got a friend who works in the hospital, my God, what's it like? Oof, easiest job I've had, there's nobody in it. Hospital's empty. I know it's, it's, it's all been um, kind of convoluted and, and ramped up, but where's the journalists telling the story? That was, that was our job. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get at the truth when they're not telling it instead of piling on and rah, rah, rahing the lie. Over in Bath, England, they had the Better Way Conference, and there was a doctor who said if the media told the truth for 24 hours around the world, COVID would be dead and gone. What is the way forward to help change this narrative, to, pay, to help wake people up from this narrative, the slumber that they're in, that we're in some sort of pandemic still? So you have to kind of become your own journalist. You have to go to the source of the information. So somehow verify it yourself to your own level of confidence. Until then, don't trust it. Right, so I guess a final thought, we're definitely living in an Orwellian time. We have the Ministry of Truth with the, the doublespeak that they lay out every day through the misinformation machine, uh, the mainstream media, I guess we can call them now Hollywood North. Um, what would you say to journalists that are within the mainstream media as a former journalist yourself? Then? Wake up and do your job. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And I fear that in calling the media out to wake up and do their job, the media would respond by saying that that's exactly what they are doing. Consider who their employer is and what they're being paid to say. Here again is an example of why the right is incapable of defending itself. And I've said this a million times. Whenever anyone labels them as being right-wing, those on the right immediately reject that otherwise very accurate and complimentary label because they've allowed the left-wing to define the right. And when Trudeau labeled the right-wing extremists, Trudeau was inadvertently correct. Jubilant and happy people are on the right, and when Palmer observed that it felt like a celebration, not a Nazi rally, he identified the very nature of the political label crime. The left told everyone that the Nazis were a right-wing organization, when the Nazis were always, and explicitly so by their own definitions, a party on the left. Communism, socialism, and fascism all share the same spot on the polarized left of the political polarity, which is not a spectrum. doesn't exist between left and right. But a spectrum does exist between the left and left. With communism on the left wing of the left polarity and with fascism and Nazism on the right wing of the left polarity, that's the only place you get this thing that we can call a spectrum. And then, improved policing needs political help, reads the headline of Chris Selley's September 6 editorial, again in the National Post. And in responding to the open letter's request that this pattern of intimidation and attacks be treated not just as an individual issue, but as a systemic one, Chris Selley wrote, quote, It's a fair request, and also perhaps politically wise. The RCMP is investigating Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland's recent run-in with a raging oink in a Grand Prairie, Alberta hospital. A disturbing encounter, certainly, but not one that reeked of criminality. 
One could say the same thing about some of the crap landing in these women's inboxes. Racist and misogynist slurs aren't illegal on their own. But some of the abuse they're receiving goes much further than that, in some cases rising to the level of overt threat. Quote, I'm going to first rape you till you bleed, and then I'm going to cut your throat and F your head, end quote, is one highly notable example. <laughs> and the idea politicians mustn't weigh in is bunkum, as Trudeau demonstrated last week. But the population of Canadians dissatisfied with the status quo seems to get larger and more diverse by the year, and it will not get better without serious political intervention, if not a wholesale, soup-to-nuts, rethinking of Canadian policing. End quote. And what a shameful, disgraceful diatribe. And as we enter the final segment of our show, and we turn to the passing of Queen Elizabeth and the institution of the monarchy itself, I'd like you to entertain a very seemingly bizarre association, which will not make any sense to you until the end of our show today. During all of the police violence against unarmed, peaceful Canadians in Ottawa and elsewhere that we've been witnessing over the past year, people have been asking themselves how Canadian police officers could possibly treat their citizens so violently and unjustly. They are astounded that such a thing is even possible, believing that the police are there to protect the citizens, not to attack them. What has changed? What if I were to suggest to you that this police misbehavior has something to do, yes, with the monarchy, or rather with an abandonment of the monarchy? Believe me, you'll understand exactly how this relates by the end of today's show, which now continues with, on this side of our final bumper break, Greg Reese, who clearly doesn't have any admiration for the new king. And on the return side, it's Glenn Beck, with a much broader perspective of the monarchy, while also agreeing that King Charles is not one of the good guys. Everyone says that today, the royal family is nothing more than a ceremonial figure, even though they choose the government, have final approval over all legislation, and own half the country. And so while we remember Queen Elizabeth, let us not forget how this incestuous family has used their own children to gain power. Parliamentary lawfare over trading rights between England and Scotland led to the first iteration of the United Kingdom in 1707 and created the legal groundwork for George of Hanover to be crowned King of England and Ireland in 1714. He was 55 years old married to his first cousin, and didn't speak any English because he was from the German house of Hanover. The English people were not happy about this, and his coronation was met with riots all across the country, followed by years of rebellions. His grandson, King George III, inspired the American Revolution, and when his granddaughter Victoria married her first cousin, Prince Albert, the house of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha took sway over the country. Throughout the First World War, the people of England were questioning the loyalty of the German bloodlines who ruled over them, which prompted the royal family to change their name to Windsor in 1917. Nine years later, Queen Elizabeth was born, who was initiated into the Druid Order in 1946, married Prince Philip of Nazi bloodlines in 1947, and gave birth to Charles in 1948. In 2010, William Coombs, 
survivor of Canada's infamous residential schools where the mass graves of children were found, claimed to have witnessed Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visit the Kamloops Residential School in 1964, where they took 10 of the children away with them, never to return. A year later, William Coombs dies in the hospital. In 1988, Prince Philip told the German press that he hopes to be reincarnated as a deadly virus to help with the population problem. And his son, King Charles, likes to joke on television how he is related to Dracula. His Royal Highness Prince Charles, who can trace his ancestry back to Romania's dark and distant past. The genealogy shows that I'm descended from Vlad the Impaler, so I do have a bit of a stake in the country. As it were. These royals are the result of an incestuous breeding program, wherein children were used as a way to gain power over the masses. So it's no surprise that they are caught up with the likes of Jeffrey Epstein, who made a living using children to leverage power, and Jimmy Savile, who had unfettered access to rape hundreds of children inside NHS hospitals and was a dear friend of King Charles. Along with Klaus Schwab, King Charles is a founder of the Great Reset. He's as green as Greta Thunberg. And last year, he announced the need for a military-style campaign to bring the world to zero emissions. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. So, how do we do it? We know how they'll do it. By cutting off Europe's fuel and forcing the people back into the 1700s. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Gonna miss the Queen. Now, that's something that I never thought I would say as an American. Gonna miss the Queen. Uh, But uh, when you see King Charles III, I think all the world will soon say, gonna miss the Queen. Wow. They might already be saying that. He's he's not a good guy. Uh, No. And he's he's also um, a little nutty. Yeah, and he's an extreme leftist. Oh, Oh, I think he makes extreme leftists. I th- I think extreme leftists go. Oh, well, I'm not with him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's. Yeah. His father said, if he could come back, if if um, reincarnation were real, he'd want to come back as a virus because humans are the problem. Oh, that's right. Everybody, I mm. think, really, whether you wanted her to be king, queen, or whatever, she affected your life. I think everybody universally liked her. Seems like it. Yeah. I think in in thinking about it uh, last week, I think she may have been the greatest um, political leader of the 20th century. And when I say political, I don't really mean political because she refused most times to get involved in politics that's according to their constitution she can't um but she guarded that 
And her job as queen was to be an icon or a reminder to set the standards of what we as a society, Western society, um, should uphold and and strive to be like. And I have to tell you, seems to have done a good job at that. I think so. It, you mm-hmm. know, you like her, hate her, whatever. You look at the end of her life. Would you not be proud to go out with her reputation and uh, uh, her memory? Yeah, I would. Yeah, with the affection that people had for her. Yeah, yeah. and and the 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 fact that you don't have any tapes flying around with her right. flying into a rage or being you know whatever. Sleeping with the King of France. None of those things. You don't have any of those. <laughs> no. You don't have any of those. Charles, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to me. It's always the third generation. And by the way, that would be us. It's mm. always the third generation. Look at the stock that uh, her father came from. Her father was, he did not want to be king. He had no desire to be king. He didn't. He stuttered. He was. He was a guy like Moses. He really should not be the king, and was not prepared ever to be the king, because his brother was the firstborn. His brother cozies up to a um, to a Nazi sympathizer, an American, by the way, uh, and falls head over heels in love with her. And decides, I'm leaving. And I'm abdicating. So now, here's Elizabeth watching her father struggle through all of this. uh, And try to be prepared and try to become the king. When he wasn't supposed to be. He becomes the king. By the time she's 14, she realizes, I'm going to have to be the queen. At 21, on her 21st birthday... She gives a, an incredible speech about pledging her loyalty to serve the people and uh, the commonwealth her whole life with honor. She lived up to that. So now her father is unbelievably great. She's unbelievably great. And the third generation, just they don't care. Mm-hmm. He, I don't think mm-hmm. Charles has any honor in him. I think William would be a great king with all that he learned from not only his grandmother, his father and his mother, Diana, I think he could restore this and be a good king. Charles, if he lasts more than five years, I'd be surprised. And if he's smart, he would abdicate in five years and give it to his son, because Charles will destroy the um, the monarchy. I know you don't care. I don't really care, except the monarchy under um, Elizabeth was the one stabilizing force of constant reminder of where we came from. It is a historic institution. Good, bad, indifferent, doesn't matter. It's a reminder of history. You take away the monarchy and try to teach 
to your kids the founders and who they fought after, who they fought against, why they fought against it. Why is the monarchy bad? And, you know, why was she stripped of all of her powers? This is gravely disorienting and gravely dangerous having uh, Charles step in. If he's learned anything from his mother and he actually does it, the monarchy has a chance. If he starts to get involved and blab his mouth and he is seen doing anything, anything, the monarchy is over. And most Americans don't care. You should. Because it is a, it's a mile marker. It is an institution that reminds us who we are, where we've come from. And the best thing is, Americans don't pay a dime for it. So I'm all for that. Well, that's easy for you to say, Glenn. <laughs> well, between Greg Reese and Glenn Beck, we just heard two intertwined yet separate controversies which have yet to really explode following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. One of those controversies concerns the royal family itself. The other controversy concerns the concept of a constitutional monarchy. Both are issues I'm sure we'll be tackling in much more detail on future programs, but for the balance of today's show, I thought it appropriate to share with you an essay I wrote 30 years ago, and which was published in Consent Number 15 in January, February of 1992. Now at that time, the Premier of Ontario was the New Democratic Party's Bob Ray, as pure a communist as was ever elected to Ontario's legislature. And the NDP had decided to change the official oath of the Ontario Provincial Police, redirecting that oath away from any allegiances to the Queen or to the monarchy. Now, not really being a hardcore monarchist myself, my original intention was to actually agree with the move, holy cow, until I investigated the ramifications further. And lo and behold, my essay ended up being titled, God Save the Queen and the Rest of Us. And I quote, Many Ontarians have sensed something sinister about the Ray government's recent dropping of the allegiance to the Queen by police officers. Unfortunately, few have been able to identify the source of their fears, fears which are well-founded since the issue at stake is far more significant than we have been led to believe, or perhaps dare to believe. Indeed, the change of allegiance is yet another tragic reminder that the Ray government is intent on ruling and not on governing. Though I'm not one myself, I find myself supporting quote-unquote monarchists on the oath issue. However, I have found it tragic that they have defended their monarchist views on shallow arguments of tradition and heritage without adequately and aggressively stressing the positive principles upon which these traditions were built. Their failure to do so has resulted in an increasing number of people coming to the belief that the monarchy is unnecessary and meaningless. After all, tradition and heritage are meaningless terms unless it is clearly understood by all what principles and history underlie the tradition. It is easily forgotten and therefore bears reminding that the British-style monarchy is an entirely different institution than a statist monarchy where a king or queen is absolute ruler. 
Indeed, since the Magna Carta, the British monarchy has evolved into an institution that has done a remarkable job at defining individual rights and protecting individuals from the concentration of too much power in too few hands. A monarchy would, of course, be the last institution one would set up as a means of protecting individual rights. If one had the magical ability to begin from scratch with no consideration to any political history or past social development. And that's an impossibility. And if constitutional drafters had a full understanding of and respect for the principles necessary to the preservation of a free society. Many of these principles have, as a consequence of historical development, come to be enshrined within the institution of the monarchy, something most tend to forget. For this reason, we must take serious measures to preserve these principles before abandoning the institutions in which they are enshrined. What has made the British-style monarchy so different from any statist concept of a monarchy is that in many ways it has evolved into an admittedly awkwardly constructed people's constitution that has proven itself to be far more functional than Canada's current socialist constitution, which explicitly protects the state's authority to override the rights of its citizens. Despite its past history and current shortcomings and imperfections, it was the British-style monarchy which, combined with the parliamentary system of government, had directly or indirectly made it possible for the world to advance individual freedom, trade, technology, and prosperity further in the past few hundred years than was possible in the thousands of state-suppressed years before. To deny or disregard this historical role of the monarchy in the haphazard manner adopted by the NDP is both an insult and an affront to the people of Ontario. When the Ray government dropped police officers' allegiances to the Queen, it also dropped their allegiance to the people that they are supposed to serve and protect. Under the old oath, police officers were sworn to protect Her Majesty's subjects. Under the new oath, they must swear allegiance to the state and to a constitution that, through its notwithstanding clause, openly allows the state to violate the rights of Her Majesty's subjects. Lest there be any doubt about my interpretation of these facts, let's compare some of the finer details of the old police officer's oath with the new. Under the old oath, in addition to swearing allegiance to the Queen, officers also swore to act, quote, without favor or affection, malice, or ill will, end quote, and promised to, quote, prevent all offenses against the persons or property of Her Majesty's subjects, end quote. Under the abbreviated new oath, officers must swear to be, quote, loyal to Canada, end quote, to, quote, uphold the Constitution, end quote, and to, quote, prevent offense, end quote, which now remains undefined. Gone are the phrases, without favor or affection, malice or ill will, and against the persons and property of Her Majesty's subjects. It is particularly significant, therefore, that a socialist government should implement such a change. It is, after all, central to the ideology of socialism that governments should rule with favor and affection. And it is central and necessary to the principles of egalitarianism that governments violate our private property rights and restrict our personal choices. 
The evidence of this is right under our noses. The policies of Ray's NDP government are all confrontational and demand that the government pick sides when it should be a neutral arbiter at all times. He has pitted business against labor, tenants against landlords, visible minorities against invisible majorities, French against English, consumers against retailers, Canadians against Americans, and the list goes on and on. The spirit of cooperation that is only possible through a free market, that is, through the voluntary interactions of free citizens, is completely alien to the socialist mentality. Socialist philosophy believes in force, not in freedom. Hence, socialists advocate forced pay equity, forced bilingualism, forced Sunday closings, forced affirmative action, forced state education, forced insurance plans, forced welfare, forced labor unions, forced daycare, forced quotas, forced culture, and forced social programs of every type imaginable. With every new law and tax, our freedom of choice, prosperity, and security are each diminished. It has been my experience that most individuals do not like being told what to do, and in particular, do not like being told to support things they strongly disagree with. Recently, more and more of us have been reaching the breaking point of tolerance, and an unprecedented number of groups have been forming to fight state intrusion into their personal and business lives. Many of us have declared ourselves, consciously or not, to be enemies of the state by protesting against high taxes, shopping outside the country, ignoring domestic trade restrictions, or by engaging in a host of activities or lifestyles not approved of by the state. So don't be surprised when at some not-too-distant point in the future, a police officer may come to your home or to your place of business not to protect you, from offenses against person or property, but to act as a loyal officer of the state, a state that is increasing its legal claim on our person and property each and every day, and a state under which our defense of person and property is rapidly being regarded as an offense, which must be dealt with in the discharge of an officer's duty, a duty to the state and to the socialist philosophy of force. Ontario, who stands on guard for thee? End quote. Wow, I wrote that 30 years ago. So it is now 2022, and all those unthinkable possibilities have already come to pass, with much worse planned for the future. We are still very much in an information war, and those who are incapable of persuasion are now in the process of resorting to the use of force, which will make the war a hot one. And as for the monarchy, the queen is dead and it appears that the great debate that is only now beginning in earnest under Charles III will come down to a choice between saying, long live the king or long live the people. But for freedom, each possibility comes with great risks and pitfalls, which can only be addressed by those who understand the nature of freedom and the principles upon which it depends. No doubt, this truth will be expanded upon as we head into our upcoming future broadcasts as early as next week when you are invited to join us again as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be We'll carry on as usual, but all non-routine matters must be referred to me.
I may proceed with my interviews, Herr Major. There is your first matter to deal with. Well, Herr Major? Let me think about that. Very well. While you are thinking, I will uh, call Herr Goebbels in Berlin and ask him what he thinks. There's no reason why you can't do the interviews. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no Goebbels at all. Uh, no reason. There is no reason why you cannot proceed. 